Buzz, the animal care and welfare podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the Pause platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Maunus Bauberg, who is an associate professor in the Department of Biology with the University of Southern Denmark. Welcome, Maunus. Hello, Sabrina. Hi, very much looking forward to talking to you again. Over the years, I was kind of in preparation of the podcast, looking back at, you know, things that we've done together and worked together. And, you know, I, some of the work dating back to 2011, as we started to prepare for a seminar, which was graciously hosted by the by uh, Hardewijk Dolphinarium on uh, marine mammal welfare and uh, subsequent, you know, pre paper proceedings. So lots of wonderful things and, you know, research training seminars together and, visiting uh, and your story in Kadimine goes way back when to 1997 when everything got started here I find your name here all the time so we yes. have you all the time in mind here <laughs> yes no that was really wonderful working um, um, starting you know with the Fjord and Belt Center and working with the porpoises and uh, yeah really always will stay very special that time and and I always lo love coming back so Fond memories of one of our seminars together, where uh, the uh, the care staff at the Fjord and Bell arranged for me to see the porpoises again and interact with them. That was lovely. So yeah, yeah, Freya is still there. So yeah, no, exactly. The very first uh, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So perhaps we always like to kick off the podcast with like a an early story of uh, you and animals, you know, it could be your companion animals or animals in the wild or anything that kind of comes to mind that is like a, like a story of you and animals. Yeah, so I'm, I'm like, I, I, I'm coming into this field of animals from, uh, you know, I started to study physics and mathematics at the university, because I, I really was interested in biology, but I thought all biologists were working in a lab and torturing animals and Kind of doing animal experiments, so I, I never, re I never really thought I would become a biologist, uh, because I thought field biologists that was like uh, David Attenberg and and uh, Jane Goodall it was completely impossible for me. So in, instead, I studied physics and maths because I thought then I can get a proper job and then I can always go out and watch animals in my free time. And then by serendipity, I ended up uh, meeting some people who studied whales in Norway. So I went up there. And, and I, I got interested in animal sounds. And, and, and because I had this background then in physics, it was quite easy for me to go into how to measure sounds and, and so on. So, so, so I, and, and it all started with field work. So for my first many years, I was always in the field. Uh, and I mainly did it as a kind of a spare time project, uh, just because I, I enjoyed it for many years. Uh, and, that, and then I met this, um, Danish whale scientist Bertel Merl, uh, also by coincidence, and he in he invited me on his boat, and I started to sail with him. And I guess one of the sort of, if, if you talk about a great memory, then it's one of those memories that is a little bit absurd because we were in between Faroe Islands and Iceland, in the middle of nowhere, basically, where you just have the ocean and it's completely flat, calm, 
which never happens in this area. It's known for really horrific weather usually. And it was completely a flat, calm summer day. And all of a sudden we saw these whales coming towards us. And these were bottlenose whales. And they are known to be attracted by boats. So we just had this flock of what I thought was dolphins because they look very much like dolphins from a distance. But when they come closer, you can see there are not dolphins at all. They're like 10 meter long almost. And they started to circle the boat and they started to just hang out with us. And we were just sitting there in the middle of the ocean with these whales around us. And it was just a fantastic uh, afternoon in the, yeah, in the middle of nowhere. So that's where I came from. And, that, and then uh, uh, when I came to uh, Fjordenbelt in uh, 2006 in Kedeminne, where, where you also worked before, uh, that was really the first time I, for, for real, started to work with uh, animals in, in captivity and, and uh, trained animals and so on. So I had no, absolutely no clue about animal training or how to keep animals in captivity before then. It was all, almost all, everything I did was field-based. Yes, wonderful. Yeah, and it is, it's, we, it's always really interesting during the podcasts also to hear where people have come from. So sometimes, you know, people have early memories of working and caring for animals and others, you know, think, okay, maybe I'll come in from a different route like a vet and then find out maybe vet science isn't for them or like you. And I think it's, it's interesting. And we're going to talk about education later, but knowing what happens in labs and yeah, some, you know, in, in there are things that we do to animals that aren't uh, good or great at all. And, uh, but of course, you know, um, having ideas of jobs and what sort of jobs can get you and uh, of course paid and salary and also interacting with animals and physics and math is another, you know, wonderful avenue and and a very important one which will be illustrated with a lot of the research that you have done also on sound in the oceans and wind turbines and other that we'll talk about and uh, I actually have never uh, met uh, Beryl Moyle myself but I remember going when I was working for the Fjord and Bell Center I was going uh, on, a, on a research trip learning about research training and on Coconut Island in, uh, in Hawaii and I remember there seeing a picture of him uh, when he was working with uh, Professor Whitlow Ao and others. And, and he had all these suction cups like stuck on his head. Uh, and, uh, and so I've only you know, read his papers and, and heard stories, but he looked like somebody who was really, you know, obviously very knowledgeable, and, but also somebody who had a great sense of humor. So, and that picture, I don't know if it's still there, but uh, this is like 30 years ago almost, but it's still, uh, yeah stuck in my mind he, he, he was uh, he was an amazing uh, scientist and, and 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 also a fantastic uh, friend and uh, and uh, yeah a, a very very nice and good humored uh, human being and uh, one thing that was nice with these sort of uh, these were the he, he was part of the of the club sort of say who started the whale science you could say in a way i mean it, whale science has existed for many hundreds of years but uh, when it really came about for real in the 1950s and 1960s uh, he was already there at that time so he and, and the amazing thing also with people like Whitlow Au that you mentioned is like they were very curiosity driven they were very much driven by understanding these animals uh, uh, which at that time were completely, basically unknown. No one knew anything about them. So it was extremely stimulating to work with someone who had that kind of 
curiosity-driven approach. Uh, I mean, he never really cared about money or uh, fame or so. He just wanted to know. I think that was a, a fantastic starting point uh, somehow for me also. Yes, no, absolutely. And it's that sort of curiosity and open-mindedness and, and just looking at the world uh, or at animals and trying to understand it in various ways or, or getting realizations of when you see uh, something or like you talked about the bottlenose whales, you know, the, the knowledge of that they seem to be attracted to boats, which I actually heard, um, I think it was um, Patrick... Miller, maybe. Yeah. yeah, Patrick Miller. He he said that uh, some time ago when he came to Iceland, he was also mentioning something. And I've only seen bottlenose whales twice, but they are amazing. They let, they look like these chocolate colored, yeah, yeah uh, beautiful animals, and, and and not very visible at least when I saw them. But um, and and I think it's that sort of. Also, there are of course animals in the wild that you have studied that we will never see in human care. And, uh, and also things that we learn from the wild that we can use to make the well-being of animals in human care better or studying animals um, in human care to you know, deal with problems or mitigate problems or understand animals in the wild better. So there's that crossover where you are working in both areas. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So when I, when, when I got started, it was all about uh, understanding animals in the wild. Uh, and then when I ended up then here in, in, in this facility in Kedemin, where we also keep animals in captivity, you know, I first wondered for myself, what, you know, what, what can I learn from these animals? What can I, can I really use animals in captivity to understand wild ones? And as the years has progressed, I've totally started to understand how much we can actually learn from animals in uh, in captivity to to better understand the wild ones and also better take uh, care of them so uh, i have been on a very long journey in that sense also mentally and emotionally uh, because uh, i was very sensitive uh, uh, when i was younger like many others are about having animals in captivity and uh, could it be useful for anything or is it just like yeah, kind of a circus uh, setup, uh, and and I, you know, along this journey, I have realized how much and how important that work is for for also understanding the wild animals. So I don't I don't see any um, sort of conflict there anymore or any issue there really. Uh, as as I started out seeing when I when I got into whale science, almost I guess thirty years ago or so. Yes, and, and of course, it's always good. And, and you and I have worked together with others like uh, Dr. Kirsten Hansen, who will soon also come onto a podcast on bringing together, you know, doing research on animals in, in human care, but also looking at the ethics of, you know, because of somewhere it's is good, right, that we feel uncomfortable about, you know, certain things. And also because it's what I think is really important is to and I know you feel that way too is to keep looking at what are we doing and are we really doing the best we can you know having that sort of autocritical look and constantly evaluating and holding things up to the light and um, and trying to understand what it is that we're doing and how we're doing things and in what ways do animals what sort of roles do they have and can uh, they help us while we of course do the best as we can for them 
And so those things, um, I think, you know, are a continuous conversation that that you and I have had for many years and continue to have, like, you know, in what ways do we show up for animals and in what way can, you know, what role do they have in, in you know, for their own uh, care, but also conserving the species, for example, harbor corpuses in the wild. And, and before we turn to more of your work and research, perhaps you can talk a little bit about where you work now and, and what sort of work that is, or whether you work with, with, um, with PhD students and, and other colleagues around the world. So we have this uh, uh, marine laboratory from uh, from the University of Southern Denmark here in a in a small coastal town in Denmark called uh, Kademinne, and just next to us is the Fjord and Belt Center, which houses harbor porpoises and harbor seals. And uh, eight years ago, we uh, started over at the marine lab where I'm working, also to keep uh, uh, gray seals. So we actually keep all the marine mammals of Denmark in, in our facility. Uh, and we train these animals, the two seal species and the harbor porpoises for, for scientific work. So we have uh, Dr. Kirsten Hansen, as you talked about, uh, uh, as sort of the, the head trainer and taking care of uh, all these animals. And she has um, quite a few people on her staff and volunteer list and also students uh, helping out with the animals because these animals, of course, need to be trained several times a day, also both week weekdays and weekends and the Christmas and what have we. Uh, and so 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 Kirsten is sort of in charge of all that. And and uh, then I have um uh, I have a postdoc Adam Smith uh, from the US working on the hearing of uh, porpoises and, and other uh situations. Uh, and uh, I just had a PhD student finishing working on penguins. So we also spread out a bit. So we both work on uh, uh, marine mammals, but we also work on uh, on marine birds uh, since a few years ago. And a lot of the core interest for us is, uh, or for myself also, is is hearing in animals and how they produce sounds, uh, what they hear, how they are affected by sound, how they react to sound, and and how what kind of sounds they produce, and and uh, then also for um, harbor porpoises, how they uh, use echolocation. Uh, just like bats so they send out signals and listen for the echoes coming back what kind of information can they get out of that um and a lot of this is happening in the lab but we also run uh, uh, a lot of um field projects uh, and uh, i used to work more or less uh, all over the world but uh, since i got a family and uh, I'm, I'm a bit more sort of a homesick nowadays so i tend to stay uh, around uh, denmark so it's mainly harbor porpoises and and uh, gray seals and harbor seals nowadays and with the harbor porpoises we are we are starting to develop techniques with drones uh, where you can film them it turns out that denmark is really ideal for this because it's usually shallow waters so we can see the seafloor while we film the porpoises and therefore we can follow them both when they are at the surface and we can also follow them when they are a few meters down and and we can actually see for quite extensive time periods what they are doing uh, with these drones uh, and then we can for example play we can play back sounds to them and see how they react to these sounds and uh, so, so this is uh, uh, there's quite a lot of field techniques that we are currently developing uh, for uh, for harbor porpoises and and also for harbor seals, so that's sort of where we are at now. 
because we have the harbor porpoises here, uh, we attract also scientists from all over the world because this is one of the few places where you can study them in captivity. Um, so we, there are always people coming uh, from all over the globe and, uh, and uh, therefore we have a huge network uh, with scientists um, all around the world, basically. Yes, and we can definitely with this uh, podcast also in the links provide some, there have been some really wonderful videos coming out uh, where, you know, you can see the work with the drones, you can see the porpoises and, uh, and, uh, and we're going to hear a lot more about birds and, uh, and other animals from, from Kirsten in her podcast later, but uh, we'll definitely put some links of, uh, so people can actually see it in action because it's, it's pretty cool. And um, perhaps you can talk to us a little bit more about uh, sounds in the oceans and, uh, and effects on, on wildlife in general and marine mammals, perhaps, or birds in specific. Yeah, so uh, we are, as humans, we're adapted to sounds in air. And uh, I, I think uh, we, we are maybe not treating our ears as uh, good as we should. If, if, when I ask my students, would you rather be blind or deaf? That's a bit of a tragic question maybe. But most people spontaneously think, we think of ourselves as being very visually oriented. So we think of our eyes as being more important than our ears usually. But when you think about that, it probably maybe you know some blind people and maybe you know some deaf people or people who have uh, you know limited hearing abilities most people with limited hearing abilities they get great help from hearing aids so maybe we don't meet so many maybe we don't know so many people who are really deaf anymore i don't know but if you know someone who's deaf you may know that uh, they are in much worse shape than blind people usually most blind people i know they don't even consider themselves as handicapped they can go along with their lives completely normally. They can more or less do whatever we can do uh, because they rely on their hearing. Uh, whereas if you are deaf, you have a very hard time socially uh, with work, with everything. You have a very hard time to know what's going on around you because hearing is completely fundamental for us to orient ourselves, to communicate and just and figure out dangers if there's a car nearby or whatever. We rely to a large extent on our ears to um, uh, sort of to to uh, grasp the world around us. And for animals living in water, this is even more important because if you dive down uh, below the water surface, uh, visibility is really bad. And I mean, even in very clear waters, you may be able to see 20, 30, 40 meters out if you're very, very lucky. But in most places, especially here in Northern Europe, the visibility is, on a good day, it's like two meters. So imagining walking around uh, and having your life sort of limited by one or two meters visibility all the time, then you would really rely on your ears. You would almost like living in, uh, in at night all the time or, or, or even worse, uh, it can be more light. Uh, or you can see further at night than you can see uh, underwater usually. So, uh, and the good news is then that sound is traveling very well underwater. So it's traveling very fast and it's traveling very reliably. So in, in air, it gets attenuated quite rapidly. So we have a hard time to hear someone talking even 10, 20, 30 meters away and things occurring at, at longer ranges than maybe a kilometer or so. It, it, it has to be like a thunder or an explosion to pick that up. Manus, before you continue, can you explain what attenuated means? Yeah. 
So attenuated means that the sound gets uh, uh, basically it 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 becomes heat. So it it gets uh, diluted or gets distorted, and the energy gets lost uh, to to basically heat uh, the water or the air up. So it's it's basically friction. So uh, you lose uh, uh, some of the energy that you send out uh, as as an acoustic wave on its way from the sender to the receiver. Uh, and that and that attenuation, this loss is much greater in air than it is underwater. So in water, you, you can clearly hear uh, even subtle things happening at very long distances. So for example, uh, a boat, uh, even a small boat with just like an outboard engine can be heard uh, hundreds of meters, sometimes kilometers away. Uh, and and, uh, and if you, uh, for example, have, um, if you have a stone falling on another stone, so it kind of creates like a, a crack underwater, this can also be heard very far away. So sound is a very, very good uh, communication channel and information channel underwater. And marine mammals are interesting because they lived on land, just like we do. Uh, 50 million years ago, they all lived on land. And then they have sort of learned and evolved to take more and more uh, credit of the, of the underwater environment. Uh, and they come there with our gear, with our lungs, our warm body temperature, and they move into this cold water environment where they then have to adapt. Uh, they, of course, have to come up to the surface to breathe, but they have some of them have amazing diving abilities so they can dive down, some of them for hours, uh, and they can uh, maintain their body heat even in uh, very cold waters. So they have adapted very well to this. And not only that, they have also adapted their senses. So for a human being, uh, if we go underwater, you know, first of all, your eyes get completely blurred. So not only is it hard to see anything a few meters away, even if things are close to you, it all gets very blurred or very unfocused because your eyes, your lens in your eye is adapted to focus on inner uh, light. Uh, when you go underwater, the, the light will be bent in different ways so that the, the focus will not be where your eye would like it to be. And therefore, you cannot really see properly underwater. But the whales have then adapted so they can see very clearly uh, also in or in water. And the same with the ears. If When you go underwater, you can, you can hear things around you, but you, you cannot tell where things are and you cannot tell the direction to sound underwater. Um, but whales have solved that and seals have solved that. So they can still pinpoint the direction to sound sources underwater. And they have an extremely high sensitivity. Uh, so they are very interesting cases of extreme adaptations uh, to this sensory environment. And they rely very much on acoustics. So they use sounds to communicate. Uh, and they listen in for prey. They listen for predators. Uh, they probably use it also to orient themselves. So you can imagine if you want to find a remote island somewhere far in the ocean, maybe you can listen in for the waves splashing towards that island and so on and so forth. And they have also developed echolocation, some of them, just like bats hunting prey in the night. Uh, dolphins and uh, porpoises, they send out click sounds and they listen in for these very weak echoes coming back from fish or other uh, items in the water. And in that way, they can find fish at rather surprisingly long distances. So sound is the superb 
channel, uh, information channel underwater. And we, of course, all know that as humans, uh, if you go down in a submarine, it's all about sound. You use sonars and uh, acoustic means of communication and navigation. Fishing boats trying to find fish, they all use sonars, echo sounders, all based on sounds. So, um, uh, so this kind of underwater environment is, uh, ex to, a, to a very extreme extent, is all relying on sound. Yes, can you talk to us more about what are some of the challenges that animals are facing? And, and also perhaps, you know, we talked, you mentioned sound, we talked noise. What do some of these words mean uh, specifically? Yeah, so, so th there is then, uh, uh, if you think like, th there is all this, uh, there is a natural background noise in the oceans, you could say. It comes from waves, from rain, from... Uh, distant earthquakes, uh, uh, what have we. These are what we would call natural sound sources. Actually, a big part of them are also biology. So uh, the first people who really started to listen for real underwater, th that was the American Navy. Uh, and they tried to listen for hostile submarines. And they were completely surprised. They were caught by surprise when they started to listen underwater because they heard all these animals making sounds. Jacques Cousteau, the famous uh, French uh, diver and filmmaker, one of his films was called The Silent uh, World. That was how he thought about uh, the ocean. But actually, when you listen with the proper gear, uh, it's not silent at all. There is a lot of natural sounds underwater. And all these animals are, of course, geared and adapted to listen into this and make use of it. So the problem starts when, uh, when humans comes into the picture, because when we run around with boats, uh, or uh, uh, make construction work at sea, or use these sonars to find the fish, and so on and so forth. This is all creating noise. And we can see that this human noise level, or the human uh, production of noise, has increased tremendously during the past decades. So it's like a steady curve of increasing ambient uh, noise levels in the oceans. And it's actually a, a rather sad fact you could say that uh, I, I think i think it's uh, it, it's a bit of a hearsay that has become a fact i think it's a fact <laughs> that you, you cannot go anywhere in the world anymore and uh, uh, without hearing human activity underwater it's all there because uh, even very distant shipping uh, will be heard almost anywhere because again because sound is traveling so well underwater there's nothing really to stop it so uh, a huge container boat going across the Atlantic, the noise from that boat will sort of be um, uh, more or less uh, uh, continuing, uh, yeah, throughout uh, ocean basins. So, uh, and when you think of all these tens of thousands of container ships we are running around with, that creates like a carpet of noise that is just everywhere. And the concern is then, how does that affect uh, animal life. Uh, so that has become a big um, issue to look into uh, because we have all these organisms that then rely on sound. So how are then they affected by all this noise that we put into the ocean? Yes. So can you uh, dive a little bit deeper in the distinction between what is noise and what is sound? Uh, like um, sometimes it's used interchangeably, but it seems to be two very distinct things or not. So perhaps you could elaborate a little bit on that. 
Yes, it's a very good question, and the and the question is, it's uh, or the, the answer, I guess, is that it's very confusing because it depends on your definition. So usually uh, there is a, there is a great uh, way of uh, of explaining this, I think, and that's from uh, one of the standard textbooks of underwater acoustics, was written by an American naval engineer called Urich. And he wrote this book in the 1950s or 1960s. And in this book, which is all about sonars and finding submarines, of course, that was their signal. What does a submarine look like? Uh, and in this book, uh, there is a chapter called Noise. And that's where you find the marine mammals, the fish. <laughs> they were all noise sources because from their perspective, they were interfering with the signal they were interested in. So the definition of noise, uh, noise can be anything and it's basically uh, what you don't want. So the signal is what you want to listen in for, and the noise is what you don't want to have. And this makes it very confusing because uh, sometimes actually noise can be very useful. Uh, think about if you get blindfolded and people ask you to move from A to B through a city. Um, you will actually rely on the cars and everything noisy around you to find your way from one point to the other uh, uh, so, in that sense, the noise is actually the, the signal you're using to make your way um, from one place to the other. So, so it all depends on the perspective. But, the, but what we use, when, we call, when we talk about signals, it's, it's the uh, signature or um, uh, item that we are interested in at that moment. And what is interfering with that? with the detection of that signal is then the noise. So that's how we define it. And then it depends on a bit if, for example, um, a boat is a signal or noise. It, it, it depends if, you're, if, if you are from the military and you are looking for that boat, then that's the signal and all the whales are the noise. If you are sort of uh, with me and we are out trying to find, uh, you know, find sperm whales, then the sperm whale is of course the signal and all these boats interfering with the detection of the sperm whales is the noise. So it, it depends on your uh, perspective. Yes, yeah, and that's really interesting because, uh, you know, I almost, it's like I envision this, this big, you know, sphere, if you like, that is all sounds. And then to me, yeah, things that I label as noisy are the ones that I tend to file under the things I don't want. Um, and that, um, but you know, all are sounds, but some are the ones that, so it's very perspective driven, but of course, different uh, disciplines have different definitions. And then you pulled in signal, uh, which again uh, is something in addition to that. So it's, I think it's really interesting to, to think about it. And, and also whether, you know, in what ways do animals, you know, perceive sound, use sound, and when does something to them become an interference? for, for example, communicating with each other or navigating and other effects. So uh, perhaps could you, I don't know if I'm, if I'm, uh, this is kind of how I explain it in my mind, uh, trying to, you know, grapple with, with these various things. I'm not a, a, a you know, a physicist or a mathematician or, um, but uh, certainly trying to understand is to also not my domain, but uh, can you tell us a little bit more about what happens when or what can happen for animals living in water or perhaps birds, uh, wind turbines, uh, when, um, you know, sound gets in the way, what are some of the outcomes or, or, or effects, stranding or other? 
Yeah, so, so I, I think, uh, so, so one, one thing to say about uh, what you just said is that uh, th this is why it's so difficult, right? Because, uh, when, when we say noise, we usually think of something that uh, we don't like. Uh, uh, so, uh, and, and the, the perception of the signal is very important. So, and, and uh, what we can measure from a signal is usually how loud it is, what kind of frequency it contains, how, how long the duration is, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's much more difficult to measure whether a signal is, uh, ag you know, agreeable for an animal or not. So, for example, if you look at the, the standards of noise for humans, there are certain dB levels that uh, uh, we are not allowing in offices, for example, uh, because uh, uh, higher dB levels would be bad for your hearing. But then after work, you go down to, the first thing a human being will do probably is to go down to this bar where there is a lot of music and a lot of people shouting. And we love to be in that environment. And apparently that's not really problematic for our ears. And it turns out to be like that. That kind of noise is not so bad to us because we like it. It's much worse, this droning noise from um, uh, a factory or something like that. But how to sort of tease out which sources of noise are then bad for you and which one which of them are good for you so another uh, so people have spent a lot of time trying to agree on standards and 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 the only standards for for noise exposure like how how much noise can we can can we uh, sort of allow ourselves to 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 let out in the oceans uh, without disturbing organisms and what comes out comes out of that is usually like a db level like a decibel level so and so many decibels is okay but the problem with that is that um, a lot of the animals are noisy I don't know if you have heard about, there is a certain fish that, uh, so a lot of people in Florida, they have built these condos that are on uh, piled, um, they are piled out in the Everglades. So you have the water be below the condos where you stay. And when they had built all those, all of a sudden people started to call in because they heard like coming from underneath the building. And these are fish, these are grunters, They're like one meter fish that breed in this area. So they will sit under your house and the calls of these fish is almost about, is around the threshold of pain of a human being. So there are very, very loud, low frequency calls that are made just under your floor. Uh, but for the, so, so if you just measure the levels, these fish would probably do something that was illegal from our, uh, sort of, uh, from these levels we have agreed upon. Uh, but of course, they are completely fine with it because this is part of their breeding behavior. Uh, both harbor porpoises and dolphins, they make sounds that are louder than uh, what would be sort of uh, agreed to be uh, healthy levels to make uh, into the oceans. So, uh, so that makes it really complicated that some sounds are loud, and, uh, but they're not annoying because it's part of the animal's uh, repertoire, if you want. Uh, where, whereas other sounds uh, can be much worse, even at much uh, lower levels. So yeah, so that was yeah. I love that. That's it's, I think it's really great to talk about things like that. Also because it really shows how important it is that we really you know talk these things through and have good definitions and and also set them in context. In you know what, like you say, you know between what happens in an office or in a factory versus what happens in a bar and very much your perception and, and also how you probably are faring that day, you know, are you tired or, you know, do you have accumulative aspects of on your well-being that affects whether, you know, even going to the bar uh, and the sound is too overwhelming. And, um, and those are some of the things, I guess, 
but in, in perhaps in your studies also looking at these accumulative effects of sound and you know uh, chemicals and other things coming together that affect the yes. animals in the wild. Yeah, so that's that that is a that, that it's exactly like that that you have you have sort of two aspects of this. One is this cumulative effect that you could have several effects. You could have several disturbances. We can talk about these disturbances later. But uh, but uh, 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 if you have a if you have a sound that uh, the, the, that a porpoise uh, dislikes, uh, and at the same time you may have. Um, uh, you may have the animals, uh, yeah, loaded with chemicals and so on and so forth. So you have stress at several different, uh, sort of, in several kinds of stresses that then could, in worst case, uh, work together to make life even more miserable for this uh, purpose. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is this, uh, exactly what you mentioned, that it also depends a bit on what uh, the animal's motivation is. Uh, and if the animal has a choice, if you can go you know, if it, if you can choose between A and B, and B may be less noisy than A, then it may choose B. But if you have no choice, then you may stick to A, and you may be fine. Uh, again, from sort of the, the 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 human counterpart, we know that ourselves that if if you live in a if you live in the countryside, and you and you may be very disturbed if there is some slight noise around you. Whereas if if you live in the city, you may not even care about it. So, so th this makes uh, life very, very complicated for us to try to uh, study this. And on top of that, then we have something like 120 species of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of marine mammals. We have 30,000 species of fish, and now we have these uh, 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 more than 10,000 species of birds on top of this, and turtles, and what have we. So uh, there is a lot of different animals out there. Uh, uh, so it's very hard to generalize. Uh, uh, um, but with that said, when you, when you, you asked me about sort of uh, what what are the concrete um, uh, effects on noise on on, on wildlife, and uh, for, if you take if we concentrate on the marine mammals, um, one of the first uh, drastic effects that people observed uh, for real that was in the mid uh, 1990s, so about 25 years ago, when uh, there were some strandings of beaked whales in um, in the Mediterranean, in, in Greece. And there was a, a scientist there, Alexandros Francis, who could relate these strandings to naval exercises. So he could see this connection that every time there was a, a naval exercise, there had been whale strandings. And he made a paper in Nature, in this very high-ranked uh, journal, uh, asking the question, is is the Navy causing these whale strandings? And this caused a lot of debate because, um, yeah, was there like a smoking gun, uh, uh, so to say? And, and, and it turned out it was. It was, uh, it was because the Navy at this point had developed some extremely loud uh, sonars. So sonars are advanced echo sounders. So again, like, just like the dolphin, they will send out a pulse of energy and then they will listen for the echoes coming back. And the thing was, at this time, uh, so what the Navy is again interested in is listening for submarines or finding submarines. And uh, submarines have become quieter and quieter. So in the old days, you could just listen for the engines and you would be able to find them. But nowadays, the engines are so quiet, so that doesn't work. So instead, you send out this very uh, loud sound pulse underwater, 
and then you uh, use some very clever engineering and you can figure out where all the submarines are. But we're talking about some very hefty sounds. So the loudspeakers they use is uh, of the size of a small car. And you put 10 of those in the water just on a string and then you send out this very, very massive pulse. So the idea is to sort of, you, you basically fill up maybe like a, a big chunk of the Mediterranean at the same time. You sort of enlight that with sound and then you can, uh, from all these echoes coming back, you can actually pinpoint where all the subs are in quite a large area. So for the Navy, this was great. This was like a, a great way to, uh, to solve that problem, to find the subs. But the problem is just that you have then all these animals with these very sensitive ears down there. And it was uh, evident that uh, especially uh, some of these species, these uh, special whales called beaked whales, uh, they uh, basically died from them. So they were found on the beach uh, after these uh, testings or uh, trials with these kind of sonars. Uh, and this has been, this is still ongoing work because uh, people are still trying to then uh, understand exactly what's going on. And it, uh, and, and this is in collaboration with the Navy. So the Navy is very interested in, uh, in solving this problem. They are still interested in using their sonars, but they are very much, you know, some people would say they are forced to, but they are at least willing to be part of these investigations to understand how uh, sound is, or how these sounds are affecting marine life and how we can then try to mitigate it. Uh, but it's very clear that th this was a very drastic example where you have uh, that actually sound can kill in the worst case. Then of course you can have much subtler reactions. You can have everything from uh, uh, animals uh, uh, reacting by simply uh, moving away from an area so uh, uh, we see that uh, uh, with, uh, in some cases that uh, the sound levels get so high, so animals will um, decide to, to move away. Um, usually then, luckily, uh, they will come back uh, when, once you stop uh, the sound. This, this could, for example, be when you build offshore wind farm parks. Uh, so you have this tower that you have to uh, usually then hammer down. So you have this giant hammer that pile drives this pile down into the ocean floor. Uh, and, and this creates uh, an enormous amount of noise underwater. So uh, uh, you can see effects of, um, of porpoises moving away from these areas during the construction of these towers. They, uh, they may move uh, kilometers or tens of kilometers away from, from, from the site. Um, and you can, of course, see, uh, I mean, if you look at other, um, uh, well, well, yeah, and then you can have more, uh, then you can have more subtle effects of noise. Uh, uh, we have something called the Lombard effect. That is exactly uh, what we experience again when we go to the bar. When we have a lot of noise around us, we will simply um, uh, increase the volume of our voice. We'll just speak louder. And this is our this is the natural way for humans and other animals to compensate for increased noise. So we see that that's well known for, for blackbirds, for example, singing in cities, they will sing louder than blackbirds in the countryside. Whales will sing louder in noisy or talk louder in, and make sounds louder in, in areas where there is more noise than in areas where less noise. Uh, so these are more subtle effects. And, and if you just, um, look at them as a, as a singular effect, it may not be that bad, right? You just raise your voice and that's it. 
But then uh, the worry is if you have all these cumulative effects, so if the animals are already stressed by pollution or other disturbances, maybe this fact that they all the time have to raise their voice is causing so much stress, so it actually can have larger effects on them. So um, that is, uh, so, so, so we have everything from these very drastic effects where animals actually die from sound to more subtle effects. And the, the great discussion is again, how, I mean, there's no question that lethal effects are of course really bad, but how bad are these more subtle effects? on animals that are reacting, uh, but maybe not uh, so much, you would say, if this was a single reaction, it would be fine. But if they have to react like this all the time, it may actually um, uh, stress them and cause uh, problems for them. Yeah, and I can imagine that for many of these uh, capabilities and capacities, it's a massive energy expenditure. Um, so uh, yeah, and perhaps you could talk a little bit also about you talk a lot about uh, have talked a lot about sound underwater and um, can you talk to us a little bit about your work like on wind turbines wind farms and the effects there yes so uh, wind farms are uh, splits the waters or how to say among among uh, people interested in conservation I think and people uh, interested in, in solving the climate crisis because it's quite clearly so that to uh, become green and to become CO2 neutral, a lot of countries have to move towards uh, renewable energy sources. And one of the most efficient ones is uh, wind farms. So a lot of countries are now investing enormous amount of uh, money into building uh, wind farms, which is great, of course, because we need this uh, transition. On the other hand, we talk about, and this is both happening on land, but it's also happening uh, in, in water. So uh, the problem is that uh, uh, we are talking about thousands and thousands of wind turbines that are uh, right now being put out in, for example, in European waters. We have an extremely rapid uh, development of wind farms going on. And the big worry is, of course, uh, uh, how may these uh, wind farms affect uh, wildlife? So if you have a wind farm um, on land, we all know them. Uh, if you come close to them, you will uh, you will hear them, you will see them. Uh, so uh, they for sure irritate humans. And and uh, to what extent do they also um, irritate or stress or even kill uh, wildlife? Uh, and there are some surprising uh, effects of wind farms. So uh, there is a lot of collisions with birds, and 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 especially. Um, uh, also, then uh, uh, bats is a big problem, a lot of uh, collisions with uh, bats. And we don't really understand this problem yet, I think, uh, uh, why there are so many collisions with certain species. Um, and, 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 and some of these birds are, for example, birds traveling through an area, but some of them are more uh, maybe birds that are attracted to the wind turbines to, uh, to hunt around them. So, for example, wild-tailed eagles are... Uh, colliding quite rapidly or quite often with, uh, with wind turbines. So that's one issue. <clears throat> and then when you put them in the ocean, uh, engineering-wise, that's a smart thing to do because the wind is much more uh, steady and uh, it's uh, stronger uh, over the ocean. So 
so you can collect much more energy and you're also a little bit out of sight of humans so uh, you don't get so many complaints from, from human beings if you put them in the water um, yeah, you get complaints from fishermen but uh, uh, there is a lot of political incentive to restrict fisheries so uh, some people think this is a great way to create marine reserves in a way because you cannot fish so close to these uh, towers so so it, it, in in many ways it's easier to put them in the water but then uh, you have this problem with uh, with sound because both when you build them you create uh, when you build them you create massive amount of sounds and when they are running uh, they're also noisy they are um, there is sound then coming from the rotor that is led through the tower into the water and uh, there have been quite a few uh, um, studies uh, of this uh, we have learned a lot actually uh, the country where i live in denmark was uh, one of the first countries who built um, uh, offshore wind farms and uh, and also made some big study programs to understand uh, their effects uh, uh, and and the netherlands has also done uh, a lot of projects in germany too and nowadays it's all i mean they are built all over the world so there's a lot of effect studies going on so we are learning more and more about it and it, it, the construction of wind farms is for sure um, something that affects uh, porpoises and can also affect fish and so on. Uh, so, so that has a huge effect. But luckily, that's, of course, over in a rather short time. So it takes maybe a day to pile down one of those wind towers. Um, uh, so after that, that stops. On the other hand, if you do like now, when you build thousands or tens of thousands of those at the same more or less the same time that could still be uh, of concern that, uh, that this is in some areas this will go on for quite quite a long time but um, uh, but that has uh, some very well described effects on on animals uh, when it comes to the uh, sort of the operational phase when they're actually running uh, we don't believe the effects are that large for most animals so the in, in generally the conclusion is that once they are standing there the noise levels even though we can hear them underwater they are actually uh, rather modest compared to everything else we are doing everything is comparable so compared to shipping and other human activities these wind turbines don't uh, seem to affect uh, marine life that much they can actually have a positive effect because again you restrict the fishery uh, usually in these parks, so therefore uh, they can work actually as uh, marine sanctuaries. Uh, there is a reef effect, so a lot of these um, animals are looking for a place to settle, like mussels and uh, and so on. They can settle on these uh, fundaments and they create um, a very large biodiversity actually. So 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 th there is a huge debate about this, and 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 it is a very controversial topic also among. Uh, conservational biologists because people seem to have this um, yeah either you like them or not it, it's a very sort of black and white uh, issue and I guess as often the truth is somewhere in between um, I, I must say I, I like them as uh, fundamentally I think we need them uh, so I think we have to live with that uh, we, we are going to have a lot of them to to solve the other problems we have uh, uh, but uh, we, of course, should uh, be uh, careful the way we, um, we, we, when we construct these uh, large wind farms. Uh, we, we, have to, we have to be considerate and think of where we put them, not to have uh, too much effect on wildlife. 
Yeah, and before we dive into like more specifics on you know your work with animals in human care, uh, some of the research, your collaborative research and activities revolve around education. Um, so perhaps you know you can talk about the EU Horizon project, or you know how does teaching about artificial uh, artificial reefs trigger students in marine biology? Because it's really interesting to understand motivations and and also outreach about our ways of uh, of our research for example sure so so one thing that is very important for me is um is education uh, we we work as a university we of course work with students uh, all the time so we uh we have this we both uh do research and we also teach but I'm also coming from, uh, I, I, I was a high school teacher for a year and I've always been very much involved in in different types of uh, teaching programs. And I'm, I've always been very interested in, in that. Also during my time at Fjord and Belt when I was, um, when we worked with uh, exhibits, that's a, like a, a small aquarium. So it has, uh, we, we built different exhibits in there and so on and so forth. So yeah, I, the, the topic of sort of outreach and, and education is, uh, is very dear to me. And uh, we had this project uh, that was actually based in Kiel. That was a European project to, um, it was actually meant to uh, coach uh, teachers to become, um, to get the inspiration to, uh, to, to, well, to inspire their students or their uh, pupils uh, to uh, be more interested in natural sciences. So I, I think, uh, so I come from a natural science background. So I'm of course, uh, or I've been, I have been interested in natural science all my life. My parents, my father was an engineer. So I've, I, I come from that uh, background where uh, natural science is just uh, fun. But a lot of people don't think like that. And a lot of the young people think it's, uh, it's difficult. Uh, it's uh, boring. Uh, it's uh, a lot of details and uh, they would rather do sort of fashion, fashionable topics <coughs> have, uh, among uh, university students is more like social sciences or uh, it, it's definitely not natural sciences. It's, it's sort this of having this uh, dull reputation. Yeah, it's like the surge of criminology and so on when CSI aired and these kind of... Yeah, and, and in a way it's completely uh, understandable, right? It, yeah. That In a way that's, uh, that's, that's very exciting. So I, I can totally understand uh, why they feel like that. Uh, but the idea is then that maybe it's because... Uh, uh, maybe it has something to do with the way we, uh, we teach the subject. Because I must confess that when I went to university, I found... I found it extremely boring. I can find the teaching yeah. <laughs> unbelievable boring. I never went to lectures. I stopped going to lectures. I stopped. Uh, I, you know, I just did what I had to do, and I, I, I was pretty good at it. So I could sort of get away with it uh, because I liked these topics. But the way they were taught was ex extremely dull. Yeah. Uh, and and even in the, in the high school, it's it, it's a bit better in high school because it's better more personalized at least where i was in sweden it was like that uh, but but university was extremely boring you had these very big uh, classrooms and uh, and uh, you had some guys uh, some professors standing there it was like being in a mass he was just sort of telling the text of today and there were a few questions and then you were out of it uh, it was not very really much like um it was not very inspiring at all 
and not only for the natural sciences i felt the same for geography or for you know uh arts or there were some just the, I, I guess it's about this sort of um teaching particular you know whether it was um social sciences or it's kind of like you say how do we teach in an engaging way or where things are set in context or related to everyday life and so that the sort of abstraction also from it um, eases a bit and, and and yeah and and the funny thing is that you you meet uh, when i meet uh, scientists quite a few scientists i meet are uh, and and some of them are sort of the some of the best scientists i know they are actually ha had the same experience so they and even if you listen to like Nobel laureates uh, and, and or read their memoirs and so on, they would very often tell the same story. They were not very interested in what they were doing until they stumbled on some question that they thought was super exciting. And they were lucky enough to be in an environment where they could just pursue this question because they loved it. So a bit like I told you before about my, my mentor, Bertel, who was uh, so uh, question driven somehow. And that's really, I think, that's a feature of really good uh, scientists. They are driven or excited by these questions. And, and that's another problem with the present educational system that we promote maybe uh, the wrong um, features of our students. So we, 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 we go for the easy things. We give them tests and we want them to be able to solve equations or problems or in in biology is often to blurt up some facts that they have read in a book and if they are very good at that they get a high grade and they will be able to continue through the system and become first master students then phd students and, and so on and so forth uh, whereas once they sit if they if they continue and choose to become scientists if they are sitting there and going to do their science they will sort of realize that oh i need all this creativity and I need this urge to uh, uh, solve problems and I have to be this problem-oriented person which may not have been what we sort of um, promoted all the way or nurtured all the way around or way, way along I mean it's not like a black and white situation because you also have to know your stuff you cannot become a good scientist if you don't know your subject but uh, but I, I have Many examples of uh, students who actually had quite bad grades uh, when they started out or when they were in high school, uh, but then they have ended their PhD at a very, very high level because they sort of were caught on to something and they had this creativity that was needed to solve uh, the specific problems they went into. So uh, what we have been uh, doing in this uh, European project I was talking about is to see if we could uh, give some inspiration to teachers to, to think in this way when they're teaching their students. Uh, because then maybe there will be some students there who will who never considered going to natural science and maybe all of a sudden they will say, oh, I'll give it a try and they may get hooked at it. And the world needs natural scientists. I think that becomes more and more evident. I mean, if something is good about the world we live in right now, it is that uh, science has uh, finally, I think, got the right, uh, <laughs> how to say, uh, level of um, accomplishment, I guess it's called. Like, both in the corona crisis, I think everyone, or almost everyone agrees that that can only be solved with the help of scientists. 
and now with the with the recent uh, um, global climate meeting we, we we also hear everyone is talking about it now um my, my fellow swede greta thunberg already said it a few years ago we have to listen to the scientists now or everyone is saying that uh, so it's sort of acknowledging that uh, we will not go through all these crises we have during the next century without uh, science so we need a lot of good scientists and one way to uh, lure them in then is to uh, work with the teachers so what we did in this uh, program to come back to our our uh, um, our educational program was to develop some um, toolkits for um, for teachers all across uh, Europe to uh, that they can do, then use in the classes and because we all came from a marine mammal background we thought uh, Basically, from our own experience, uh, we, we were all a bunch of scientists who got interested in science out of our fascination from um, marine mammals. So we thought maybe we can use these marine mammals that uh, uh, almost everyone has this kind of iconic, or uh, it, it has this panda effect, right? There are certain animals that people just like. And almost everyone likes a seal and a dolphin, and, uh, just like with the panda. And, uh, so the idea was, can we use this interest that uh, this almost innate interest that humans have for dolphins and seals to then lure them into starting to ask questions about these animals? How can it be that a seal can live in the Arctic, even though we know it's, um, it's uh, designed inside, it's designed like us? Uh, like I said before, they have lungs, they have a high body temperature like we do. Uh, uh, and they had to dive to several kilometers or several hundred meters of depth in the Arctic to find uh, food. How how can they do that? So we 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 designed some uh, study activities that we think are question driven. That we sort of want the students to ask questions and then explore these questions to find answers, because that's exactly how we feel we are doing when we are working with science. And this is great fun when you start to do that. When you start to get interested and start to um, ask your own questions and find your own answers all of a sudden you realize oh there's so much i don't know there's so much i need to know and then all of a sudden hopefully all this more boring stuff to learn what molecules uh, look like and how many carbon atoms there are in ethanol and what have we it all all of a sudden makes sense okay i have to know all this to be able to answer these uh, interesting questions so that's what we hoped to um, to do Wonderful. That sounds wonderful. And, and I think, you know, you, you talk about science and science, of course, having a very prominent and important role in, you know, acting for the climate or for other animals, for peoples. And at the same time, also, you talk about, you know, problem solving, creative, you know, being creative, really thinking things through and pulling from all kinds of different fields. Um, because of course, we, we also know that only facts or only science is not going to, you know, we have a lot of data and we have a lot of evidence, but that doesn't seem to sway. I mean, you know, the, the latest, the COP26 was a big failure. Um, so, um, yeah, so what is it going to take, right, for us to, um, for us all really um, to make those changes? So, uh, yeah, but that's, that's definitely a topic for another, for another podcast. In the last uh, minutes of this podcast, I would love to hear from you. Uh, you know, we've heard a lot about working in the wild and wild animals and, and, and a little bit also, of course, of 
the porpoises, but also the birds and the seals um, in human care. So perhaps you can talk a little bit about, you know, the importance, the role of animals and uh, perhaps the research training seminars and, and some of the, the, what is coming out of all this research and all these efforts and how is it helping? Yeah, so I think uh, uh, we have uh, at least uh, two lanes, uh, maybe even three lanes of, um, of uh, how to say of action in 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 uh, in in our facility and the, in the facilities we work. Uh, we don't only work here; we also work in other facilities. Uh, but uh, but uh, and 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 one of them is to uh, to understand. Um, you could say you could call it basic uh, physiology and behavior. So understand uh, the animal's senses and how they can cope with uh, uh, the cold water we talked about and uh, uh, how it can be that they can dive to uh, great depths and so on and so forth. A lot of, if, if, again, when you start to think about these questions, uh, even if you want to answer them for wild animals, you very rapidly start to realize that I really know, need to know some basics. For example, to know something about how porpoises react to wind farms I really need to know something about how they hear. And how should I figure that out? Well, the easiest and I think the best way to do that is to study animals uh, that we keep in captivity. Because uh, the alternative would be to go out and, and catch a wild animal and try to do experiments on this and then let it go. And the learning curve, uh, we all do mistakes. When, when we do science, uh, you should also realize we're always, all, you know, on the sort of uh, uh, the interesting science is always happening on the border between what we know and what we don't know. And there is exactly the place where you will do a lot of mistakes. So when we do measurements, uh, every every day is uh, a lot of failures to me. I was just down, we did a, an experiment with a bird and it failed because I had made a stupid programming mistake today. So uh, there are all these things happening because uh, uh, things can go wrong. And if I had to do all that stuff in the field with wild animals that I had caught to to work on. I think that would be a, uh, creating a lot of stress for these animals. So in my so in my ethical code, this is much more appropriate to do on animals that we keep in captivity, that are trained to be handled, and that enjoy actually being in these experiments. So uh, uh, for example, if you want to study, if you want to know how an animal hears, uh, there are two ways to do it. You can either do it by electrophysiology, so you can measure from the surface, from the skin, you can measure the, the brain activity of the animal and figure out how they hear from that. Or you could train the animal to answer, I heard that tone, but I didn't hear that tone. And, um, and we do both uh, of these approaches. And that's really what gives you the robust background for then going out and seeing what happens then if an animal hears uh, a wind farm. How does that sound for that animal? So we are always working very closely with the questions about conservation biology in the field and with the activities we have with animals in, uh, in, uh, in captivity. With these loud noise pulses from wind farms, people are worried how they affect the hearing of the animals. So in, in captivity, we can make these kind of experiments. We can play out sounds to them uh, from the wind farm construction sites and we can then see how the hearing threshold changes. So the animal gets uh, what we call the discotheque effect. It's the same again, if you go to the bar, when you come out from that bar, your hearing will be actually be worse, but then it will come back to normal after a few hours. But uh, 
for, for, a, for a few minutes after you were exposed to sound, you can see this threshold change. And we can study this again to understand how, and how vulnerable animals are to human uh, noise. So that's one lane uh, that we actually do studies that complement the wild ones uh, and are really important for that. The other lane of research is that the, the development of gadgets is, is just exploding in, uh, in, in marine mammal research. We, it, almost every year we have some completely fascinating thing coming out. The cover of Nature, again, the most prestigious scientific uh, a magazine was uh, uh, some humpback whales the last week because people have put uh, cameras on these whales so they can follow them in great detail. Uh, so it's unbelievable how much of this is happening. But again, uh, all that work comes from work with animals in captivity because it, when you come to the very details, how do you put the camera on a whale? In old days, they would harpoon them. That's not the best approach. So nowadays we use suction cups. And you can actually design suction cups to sit on a whale for hours and days and even longer sometimes. But how to design the proper suction cup? Well, it's best place to do that is to try it out on a whale in captivity. So uh, uh, you can try different sizes and different shapes of the suction cup to get the ideal one. Uh, so, uh, and, and actually these instruments are very often calibrated and tried out on animals in captivity first before you deploy them in the field. So again, this kind of technical development that we see in field biology is all coming from work where we have started to do the techniques in captivity to sort of learn to make them work in the field. It's, uh, it's really not easy to make these things work. Uh, uh, so you need uh, many, many years of, uh, um, of uh, development to reach that point. And, and uh, uh, so, so that's another lane, uh, if you want, where, where these animals in captivity are very important. And the third one is then education, both for students, for inspiration, but also for the general public. I think, I think the world would be much poorer if people uh, weren't able to see these animals that we are so, uh, we think are so important to protect. I mean, one thing is you can, of course, make nature movies and uh, uh, you can also, Say, tell that people should go out and see them in the wild. But that also has an effect. Uh, if, if, if everyone is going out to watch wildlife, that is also actually uh, affecting wildlife. So having these institutions where a lot of people can come and see them closely, I think it has an, an extremely important uh, effect also on conservation biology. Because the people see and experience and um, get engaged by, by, by being with animals, they will also have this, uh, they will be more prone to want to protect them afterwards. Yes, it reminds me of some of the work of, for example, the uh, portable anesthesia kits like that, is, that are used for so many different species all around the world. And also that you know, being developed in collaboration with, the, with animals uh, in human care so that you could safely test and look at all these things and you know, before we take it out into the wild and deploy it on animals or use it with animals where you know, it could also be very dangerous for them or not work in that way. So yeah, there's so much there uh, to learn from. And also, you know, as you mentioned before, you know, having a choice, having control and training and a lot of what, you know, all the work that you do, whether it's with the seals or the porpoises or the birds, uh, pretty much all the animals are participating all the time because they enjoy it. And they're actually trained for each and every task. And of course, 
Uh, and that also is something that when you go to Fjord and Belchenta, for example, or, you know, for tours, for the research that you can actually see how do we take care of animals, right? How do they collaborate in their care? And um, so I'm really, you know, if you're listening to this, this is um, coming out um, December, 2021. Uh, and so we are in the process of uh, developing and organizing a, a research training seminar, which every two, three years uh, we are organizing together. And, and you know, thank you, Manus and your team again for hosting it in 2022. Uh, so keep an eye out or an ear out uh, for more information on that because that's really important, right? How do we train animals for research in the best way using positive reinforcement? How do we problem solve when we run into, you know, having to do that? And also really looking at, again, how do we care for them? You know, enrichment, but also important topics like the law, ethics, and others. So we're really looking forward to that next seminar. And in conclusion of this wonderful podcast, we've heard, you know, from bottlenose whales and being out and being inspired to, you know, coming from a different angle into this field. Can you uh, share with us a story, perhaps, uh, you know, something else, a surprising finding or another amazing uh, interaction with an animal, anything to conclude? I think uh, my, my favorite story from uh, uh, the captive work, and it's actually connected to uh, to Kirsten uh, Hansen that you're going to uh, interview uh, later on, because uh, uh, we, we had done the marine mammals at, uh, uh, and we have talked a lot about marine mammals and, uh, and uh, I mean, the seals and the whales and how they are affected by noise. And I actually organized, uh, I, I love to organize these meetings with you, Sabrina. And, and one of the earlier meetings uh, I organized uh, was like an uh, in, international conference about this topic, uh, about how animals um, react to underwater noise. And I realized during that conference, this is like 15 years ago, that uh, no one was talking about birds. And I thought, well, you have turtles, fish, whales, uh, dolphins, seals, uh, but you also have birds. Uh, you actually have several hundred species of birds. Think about all the penguins, all the alcids, uh, cormorants, what have we. They also dive and use the marine environment to find their prey. And some of them dive for 10, you know, penguin can dive, some penguins can dive for 10 minutes so they can, and go to several hundred meters of depth. They're almost uh, a bit sea-like in that sense. So how do they make use of sound? And it turns out uh, there is no literature. No one had studied how birds hear on the water. There was no literature on this. So I was dreaming uh, for years about starting this project. Uh, uh, and I, I was lingering for many years on how to do this. And I, I read up on it. And I, I realized that the cormorant would be the best species for this. Because as you know, in China and Japan, there is this traditional fishing method where people are training cormorants. Uh, now, I was in Japan and I saw a demonstration of this. And I, I don't think uh, you, Sabrina, would call it training, actually, because it was more, uh, it was a bit more, it, it was not positive reinforcement, really, what they did. But uh, anyhow, these people uh, uh, used it, they are easy to keep in captivity and they get uh, accustomed to humans. And uh, to some degree, they can be trained. So I was looking for a cormorant. Uh, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, Kirsten called me because she was working in the zoo. And she told me there is this cormorant here that has just landed in the zoo. It was a wild cormorant. Uh, do you want it? And I said, yes. So in a few days, we built this enclosure 
in my lab and we got Luke uh, a comment there. And for several years, uh, uh, so the thing is because I come from this from a completely different background. I have no background in training myself, but uh, I have been uh, working with trainers for many years. So I was of course interested in it. And, and I sort of decided myself that I will do the training. So I, I started out training Luke yeah, and I, uh, I learned a lot from it. Uh, uh, and I, but I also had my difficulties. And actually I remember Bertle again, my supervisor coming by and saying, it looks more like Luke is training you. <laughs> so then I decided I needed some help. And then Kirsten came and worked with us and she trained Luke. And what came out of that study was, uh, uh, this was the first study ever on uh, how uh, a bird hears underwater. So she managed to train Luke to dive down and do a hearing test down there. And uh, uh, getting this data, uh, from this bird was uh, one of those really amazing stories of uh, of uh, yeah of working so closely with an animal and also getting to know cormorants because cormorants are birds that most people think oh they're ugly they are horrible when I tell my mother I work with cormorants she's like oh no don't she thinks they are like rats or they are horrible animals and uh, just like a rat can be a wonderful animal so can a cormorant they are beautiful smart intelligent animals and having Luke to do all these tests with Kirsten was an absolutely amazing experience. Yes, I still remember seeing at one of our research um, meetings, you know, seeing in action and as you say, this whole getting to know the individual as well as the species and it's famous because if I remember well, it ended up in the National Geographic and some other you know, we've got some really good news coverage um, because it is quite special. And often that is also, as you talked about, the curiosity and the questions to, you know, other species uh, that we haven't necessarily worked with or know how do they perceive the world. And uh, yeah, so that's a wonderful story to conclude this podcast. Thanks so much, Maunus, for coming on to the podcast and sharing your background and sharing the research. And there's so much more to discuss. So hopefully in the future we can have you back on the podcast to hear more about all kinds of developments. I saw uh, something about age and lunar, you know, predicting bycatch in, in harbor porpoises in the Baltic. So there's just, you know, you're working on so many different fascinating things. And thanks for sharing some of that uh, with us today. It was my pleasure. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much again for a wonderful podcast, another end of a podcast here. And of course, as you know, well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the education and tools you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a pause member today.